let's begin with the Lord's Prayer, as is our custom. And let's open our hearts all across town, all across the states. Some people in other states, some people in other countries are watching us today. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to talk to you today about the subject of holding on to your destiny. And a few days after we had already got the graphic set, I, I wished I'd used another word than destiny. Destiny is kind of a pop culture word, and it's used in Christianity, and it's a good word, but I think it's misunderstood. When we talk about destiny, that creates an illusion that Christianity is all about us. It's all about us being fulfilled. It's all about us having a meaningful life. And Jesus is certainly for that. He said in scripture, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He spoke of the devil. He said, the thief comes only to kill, to steal and destroy. And that's not his mission at all. He has come to set us free and to give our lives meaning. But Jesus didn't come in order for us to have, quote, destiny. He came for us to be born again, to resolve the issue of sin, and to become a child of God. And that is the first step in what we call destiny. There's a couple of Bible words that I think we need to understand that might be better use, uh, better represent the idea of destiny than destiny. And it is the biblical word inheritance that we see used in Hebrews. And it's also a Pauline word called our calling. We are called to something. We have a life that's to be inherited. Just as Israel would go into the promised land and live a life that glorified God, we have an inheritance, we have a calling, we have a purpose, and it's to honor and glorify the Lord. Um, a lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is just about salvation. And boy, salvation is a big word. And it's a beautiful word. It's a powerful word. But a lot of times we view church and Jesus and Christianity as just a fire insurance policy. So we don't go to hell. You know, I'm saved. That means I'm going to heaven, not going to hell. And that's great. <clears throat> the Bible says when we come to the knowledge of the Lord that we pass from death unto life. And that's a beautiful thing. But that's only the start. That sets the framework of our life. After this experience called salvation that has at its heart, it's a moment and it's a process at the moment of salvation, we're ready for heaven. We've passed from death into life. But our life is then marked as part of salvation by a process called sanctification. And sanctification is the process of being separated from evil and dedicated to that which is good. 
We call it holy living. So we don't just get right with God to avoid hell and make heaven our home. We get right with God because our lives are being changed into what they were meant to be. We depart from iniquity. We practice holy living. But it doesn't even stop in its definition with sanctification. Now you've got this big thing called salvation and part of salvation is our sanctification. We're growing to be like the Lord. But then out of that grows this thing called our service. We are called to glorify God. We're called to be his children, but we are also called to serve him. Now that doesn't mean everyone has a, a ministerial vocation. It doesn't mean that the pastor or the priest are serving God and we're not serving God. It doesn't mean that at all. Anytime we're walking in the will of God, we're in service to him. It's our reasonable service, our expected service, as Paul described in Romans 12. But our attitude changes as we realize that he's not only saved me from the from the penalty of sin in the past and the, and the power of sin in the future and the very existence or presence of sin in the future. I meant to say we're saved from the power of sin in the present. But he is also working to sanctify our lives and one day it's going to be complete as we get to heaven. But in the meantime, we serve him, not to be saved, but because we are saved. Um, it's a matter of perspective. One preacher put it this way, and I really like it. He said, a sinner fears hell. So we don't want to be sinners. A servant fears the lash of the master. And we're servants, but he's got so much more for us. And this is it. A son doesn't fear hell. A son doesn't fear the lash. A son fears the displeasure of the father. So what God is after, and if you come to Jesus today and you say, I am afraid of hell, I'm, I'm as lost as a goose in a snowstorm, I've got good news for you. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast them away. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's able to save you right where you are right now. At this very moment, you open your heart to him and you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. I accept Jesus as the sacrifice for my sins, as the substitution for my punishment, and I accept him as my Lord and I'm going to live for him. You pass from death into life, but your attitude changes. You're no longer fearing hell. You're no longer fearing the lash of a master. Now your desire is to always please the Father and you fear anything that would displease him. When I was a youth pastor, um, my kids used to say, well, what kind of trouble did you get into growing up? And I said, not, not a lot, thank God. I mean, it was the grace of God, but I had a pretty innocent and sheltered life. And they said, how did you deal with peer pressure? And we all have peer pressure. But I thought about it and I realized that the way I dealt with peer pressure was the realization I just didn't want to displease my parents. I wanted my brothers to be proud of me. I wanted to please my mom and dad. And my growing up years were not relatively clean because I was terrified of hell. They weren't relatively clean because I was, I was afraid that I was going to get, you know, beat up on. Uh, 
I had a love for my parents and I had a love for my brothers. I had a love for my family, had a love for God. And that was my motivation. So as we serve the Lord, that ought to be our motivation. Uh, we go from fear, we go from dread to delight. Now, I realize that that takes time to change that mind sometime, but that's what God helps us to do. To get to our destiny, to get to this point in life where we're living for our inheritance and our calling, we've got to stay focused. You might remember a couple of years ago when I was in another preaching series, I talked to you about Washing Machine Charlie. That was the name the Marines um, on Henderson Field, at Henderson Field in Guadalcanal during World War II, gave to a strategy of the Japanese. They would come in at night with a single engine plane, and the Marines knew that those little single engine planes, planes were designed to get in and out, and they had a payload of one bomb, but they would come in and they would drop the bomb on the place where the Marines were standing guard or where they were sleeping. And the minute they heard these uh, planes come in, they would, they would tense up knowing a bomb's gonna be dropped somewhere. Well, the Marines found something even more powerful than dropping bombs was being done by the Japanese. Washing Machine Charlie was that single engine, little one bomb plane that would come in with its motor deliberately set out of sync. And it, they said, instead of sounding like a, a smooth flying Mitsubishi, <laughs> it sounded like a washing machine that was about to fall apart. And the noise would keep them awake. They would, they would wonder, does this plane have a bomb? Does it not? And the whole thing was designed to disrupt the rest and the focus of the Marines. It was later said that washing machine Charlie, though they usually didn't even fire a shot or drop a bomb, did more to demoralize and disorganize the Marines than any bomb or any other weapon that they had. Now the Marines fought through that and they adjusted, but the point I'm trying to make is that we'll find ourselves in times, in places, in seasons of life where we are disrupted we are interrupted. Our rest is disturbed. Times like this coronavirus where we don't know from one day to the next what the restrictions are going to be or what we're going to do. Some of us are going stir crazy. Others of us are, are, have lost jobs. I understand, but we've got, we've got to wrap our heads around this. One of the things God is trying to do is to help us regain our focus on him regain our deliberate gaze on him because the devil knows that if he can just keep sending washing machine Charlies, we'll stay in a panic, we'll stay in an uproar, we'll, we'll wanna do this in anger, we'll wanna do that in anger, we'll become short-tempered with those that we love so much. And what happens is we're being attacked by washing machine Charlie, so we've gotta get focused again. I'm not talking about mind over matter, and I'm not talking about just having a positive attitude. I mean, I think that's obviously a good thing. But I'm saying we are in warfare, not only in the natural world with a virus, but I believe that we are on the brink of the greatest day that the church in America has seen since the Great Awakening. 
I really believe that. I believe we are on the brink of the third great awakening. And you've got to remember that God is allowing this. Again, I'm not saying God did this, but I'm saying that nothing can touch us without God's permission. And God uses the devil uh, and the devil's plans. And God uses bad things to sharpen us and to equip us to be better servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's what the church in America is seeing right now. We've enjoyed religious freedom for so long. We've enjoyed uh, economic prosperity at some degree or another for so long. And this is something that's new to us. This is something that nothing's come close to it in the last 90 years or so in our country. So the first time in our lifetime. And if you'll remember the first day we started live streaming, I said, we've got to stay focused on God because one of the worst things that could happen to us during this pandemic is for God to take care of us and we come through unscathed, but at the same time unchanged. We believe God is going to take care of us and he has taken care of us. There has been loss, there has been death, there has been trouble. And I'm not here to say that there has not been suffering. We know that there, that there has been. Jesus said in this life, you will have tribulation and we dare not minimize the, the economic impact and the, and the emotional impact, the impact on our children, on our elderly, it is, it is beyond description. But neither should we negate the, re, the reality that God has watched over us as well. And we have that tension that we live in, both things, the tragic and the triumphant, it all comes at once. And the Lord is eager in his people I'm saying this to the Christian life family. The Lord is eager for us to get through this, but he's also eager for us to come through this better than when we went into this. And I know that's easier said than done, but God is helping us. He is helping us. And I want to ask you this question as we move into the message today, and I'm going to be a little brief because of all that we've done today, um, or as brief as I can be. Um, I want to ask you this question. When we come back together, when things get back to relatively normal, when the worst of this is past us, where will you be standing? What will you have learned? What will you have accomplished? That's a question that only you can answer. And I don't ask it to put any of us on a guilt trip. I ask you for the reality check of what have I learned as I've walked through this deep and dark valley. Now I'm going to pick up the story where we left off last week. If you were here last week, you remember that we were talking about Naaman, the leper, and how Naaman was sent uh, by the king of Syria to um, Elisha, the prophet. And Elisha, the prophet, gave him very simple instructions. He said to Naaman, who was, had an incurable disease, leprosy, he said, go to the Jordan River, dip seven times, <coughs> excuse me, and when you've dipped seven times, you'll be made clean. Well, we went through the struggle that we all have with complete obedience. Um, 
we all want our miracles, but it's not always easy to walk in complete obedience. And it wasn't easy for Naaman. He got angry. He said, we've got better looking rivers back home. Why couldn't I wash in them and be clean? I thought that Elisha would come out and send a, instead of sending his servant Gehazi and wave his hands over me or do something that prophets do, at least do something to get us on the evening news. That's what I expected. And he just tells me to go dip seven times. And he was so angry. And his uh, attache spoke to him and, and said, General, listen, you were prepared to do something crazy. You were prepared to do something potentially humiliating. You were prepared to do whatever the prophet said. Don't you understand how blessed you are? All he said to do is go dip, <coughs> excuse me, and be clean. And they talked him into doing it. So he went to the Jordan and he dipped. And when he came up the seventh time, the Bible says he, his leprosy was gone. And not only was his leprosy gone, but his skin was like the skin of a little child. And he was made well. Now, he wanted to reward Elisha for it, but Elisha said, no, this isn't about what you can give me. This is about God's love for you. So Elisha would not accept a reward or any token of a gift from Naaman because he wanted Naaman to know this was based on God's love. Now, it'd be wonderful if the story ended there, but it didn't. And that's where I want to pick up today. And I want to talk about how to hold on to your calling. I want to talk about um, thinking for a few moments about how you're living and are you walking away from an inheritance that God has meant for you? Is this whole thing right now designed to make you a better man or a better woman than you ever thought possible? Don't abort it. Don't cut it short like Gehazi did. Let's read his story. Now, picking up from last week, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman this Aramean by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything's all right. Gehazi answered. Uh, he, he lies. He lies. Here's the, uh, the, the right-hand man to the most powerful prophet in all of Israel, and he resorts to lying to get something that he wouldn't get otherwise. Everything's all right. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Now, Gehazi is wanting this for himself. By all means, said Naaman, take two talents. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. See, Gehazi didn't even have to carry the stuff. When Gehazi came to the hill, meaning he was about to come back home where Elisha was, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. 
But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? And then he asked questions that we need to ask. Is this the time to take money or accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? That's what he was going to do with the money. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Guys, I just want to point out a couple of things as we bring our worship service to a climax and a close. I want to point out, first of all, the power of holy passion. There is something about the heart that seeks after God and does it with integrity and purity. You remember what my pastor told me? I mentioned it last week. He said, there's two keys to success in, in serving the Lord. Remember, the second thing he said was always obey fully. That's what we talked about last week. But the first thing he said was always keep your heart clean. Always keep your heart clean. Watch your motives. There's never a right way to do a wrong thing, he would say. God said um, to Joshua, the successor of Moses, he said, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Why did he say that? Because for the 40 years in the wilderness, Moses lived in the presence of God and the people of Israel would stay away. They didn't want to get near the thunder and the lightning and the cloud of glory. They stayed away except for one man, one man named Joshua. And Joshua was not allowed in the presence of God as Moses was, but what he would do is he would lay down at the door of the tent. He got as close as he could get to the glory of God. And everybody kept their eyes on Joshua, or excuse me, on Moses when he would come out of the presence of God, but nobody seemed to notice the man who walked behind him. The man who also reflected glory. And year after year after year, he had this holy passion for God. He never wanted to be recognized for it. He never expected payback for it. But year after year, he's pursuing God as closely as he could. And that's why God said when it was time for Moses to go to heaven, that's why God promised Joshua. He said, Joshua, I've seen your pursuit and just as I have been with Moses all the days of his life, I will be with you all the days of your life. That's the way Elisha got his start. <clears throat> he was the right-hand man to another prophet, just as Gehazi was the right-hand man to him. He was the assistant to Elijah, and Elijah had such profound power. The rain in Israel stopped for three and a half years at the word of Elijah, Elijah and it started uh, later at the word of Elijah. And Elijah was the prophet of such incredible, miraculous things. And whenever it became evident through, apparently through the witness of the Spirit or the word of God, we don't know how, but we know that the schools of the prophets in several locations knew this. They said it's time for Elisha to go to uh, Elijah. I'm sorry to go to heaven, and and Elisha knew that his master was about to go to heaven, and Elisha was going to make a request. 
He said, will you do this for me? When you go, when God takes you, will you grant me a double portion of your spirit? Now, it's interesting that in scripture we have Elisha doing double the number of miracles that Elijah did, but I'm not sure that's what Elisha was saying. I think what Elisha was saying is, I want the inheritance of the firstborn. I want the greatest share that you, you've impacted so many lives, but I want your work to continue through me and I'm going to pay the price. And this was the stipulation that Elijah gave to Elisha. He said, if you will be with me when God takes me, it will be done. But if you're not, it won't be done. Now, uh, Elijah said that was a hard thing. But let me tell you what Elisha had done to distinguish himself. They had had great ministry in Gilgal. And Elijah says to Elisha, um, I'm going to uh, Bethel. You stay here. And, and Elijah, Elisha said, no, sir, as God lives and as you live, I'm going where you're going. He knows that his future is keyed in on this pursuit and this valuing the presence. So they get to Bethel and Elijah says to Elisha again, hey, I've got business down in Jericho. I'm going to Jericho. You stay here in, Be in Bethel. And, and um, Elisha says, no, sir. As God lives, as you live, I'm going with you. When he gets to Jericho, he said, I've got one more stop at Jordan. You stay here. And the answer is the same, no. And every place he goes, the prophets that are learning, student prophets, are saying to Elisha, we've got a word from the Lord. Don't you know that your master is going to be taken from you today? And Elisha says, I know it. Now you just be quiet. And Elisha won't leave him. So they're standing at the Jordan. Elisha takes his mantle, kind of, you know, like when you used to play uh, with your brothers, you know, when you pop them with the towel. He rolls up his mantle and he strikes the Jordan River and it opens and they walk across on dry ground. Now, in a matter of hours, God is going to do something phenomenal. He's going to send a chariot from heaven, surrounded by fire. It is a heavenly escort to take Elijah to heaven. And it's phenomenal. And Elisha is there, just like the condition that Elijah put on it. And God blessed him with a double portion. Elijah's gone, the chariot's gone, the fire's gone, heaven's closed. All Elisha has is the mantle on the ground that fell from Elijah as he left. So he said, I asked for a double portion. He takes up that mantle, just as he had seen his master do earlier. And he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? In other words, he was saying, Lord, you said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Now, will you be with me as you were with Elijah? And he strikes the Jordan. And for him, the Jordan opens and he walks across on dry ground. Now, the amazing thing is that just as Elijah had chosen Elisha as his student, as his protege, Elisha chose Gehazi as his protege. I want you to know that as we read the story of Elisha, we see a man in training, Gehazi. 
And he comes to a point of a great opportunity, a great test, but it ends up with great failure. If God had had his way, I believe this chapter would have read differently. I believe we would have heard the Lord say to Gehazi, as I was with Elisha, so will I be with you. But we don't hear that. We see, we read his mistake. He lies. He puts his interest in, in material gain instead of spiritual follow through. And the result was that he was a leper the rest of his life. It doesn't mean he went to hell. doesn't mean God didn't use him. But he never lived up to his inheritance. He never lived up to the plan of God in his life. And you say, Pastor, how did that happen? Well, let me give you two things very quickly. And we must guard against this with all of our heart. Number one, he did not realize the seriousness of the day in which he lived. When Esther realized that the fate of all of the Jews in Persia might rest upon her act of obedience, her uncle said to her, who knows, but perhaps you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Every child of God, every one of us ought to understand that you are not an accident of history. My wife used to worry about me every time I'd watch a time travel movie. She said, if you can ever figure it out, you're out of here. She described me this way. You are a man of the 19th century who was born in the 20th century who's trying to figure out the technology of the 21st century. I, I tell you, I, I feel at times like my values, my, my preferences are from another century. But I know that I was born the day I was born for such a time as this. You were born where you were born. You were raised in the family you were raised in. Even with all of its adversity and trouble, you were, were where you were. You are where you are for such a time as this. And Gehazi did not realize the seriousness of the day in which he lived. Israel, Judah, were both headed for judgment. They were both headed for exile. They had, they had staggered under the leadership in the northern kingdom of the house of Omri. Ahab and Jezebel had led them down a path that was horrendous. And that same carnality was now filtering over into the southern kingdom, into Judah. It was a time if ever an Elijah was needed, if ever an Elisha was needed, if ever a Gehazi was needed, it was then. He did not realize the seriousness of the day in which he was lived. And loved ones, we can spend all of our time complaining about our circumstances. We can spend all of our time complaining about mistreatment we might have experienced, even though it's real. Or we can determine that God has placed me where I am right now. A lot of people never happy with their marriage, so they hop from one marriage to another. Never happy with their church, so they just jump from church to church to church. Never happy with their job, so they jump from job to job to job. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a time that you might need to change churches. There's a, there's a time that you might need to change jobs. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying this. We have lost the sense of being people of destiny and being people of purpose 
And Gehazi lost that too. Here's his second problem. He lived poorly in the midst of the supernatural presence of God. There was such um, an outpouring of the miraculous, such an outpouring of the, of the grace and the gifts of God during the time of Elijah and Elisha. It's been said that there were not as many miracles before or after the times of Elisha as there were in those days. Now, let me tell you about Gehazi. He expected the supernatural power of God in the lives of others. He was like Israel when Moses went up on the mountain. Uh, God called all of them together, but they said, no, thank you. You hear from God, Moses. You tell us what he says. We're just going to stay back here and we'll, we'll tailgate till you get back. But you go hear from the Lord. It's amazing how many Christians expect their pastor to hear from God. Expect evangelists to hear from God. Expect prophets and teachers to hear from God. But we reserve the right to criticize and stand far back. And we're living in the midst of one of the greatest things uh, in history in, of our country. One of the greatest outpourings of the Spirit. But we expect it from others, but don't embrace it ourselves. Loved ones, as we move out of this difficulty, let me tell you to avoid this like a plague. Do not forget that you are where you are right now in the providence and wisdom of God, and you have a job to do. Number two, don't negate what God is doing in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a society gone bad. Don't underestimate what God is doing and make sure that you decide you're going to be a part of it. Let me give you three Christian life lessons just a minute or so each. <laughs> Number one, replace passivity with hunger. Uh, a lot of times the sin in our life is not overt wrong things. A lot of times the sin in our life is just passivity. Uh, when we teach in our leadership school, I'm asked every year, pastor, in all of your experience, what is the thing that separates an overcoming successful pastor from a mediocre or even a failing pastor? And it's, it's this. It's passivity. A person that is going to be a success is never passive. They never are content to just be here. They're always leaning forward. So replace passivity with hunger. Replace unholy ambition with holy love. A lot of times your service for the Lord can be like a corporate ladder where you're clawing and climbing and just stepping on people to get to the top. But Jesus said, that's not the way it will be among you. The greatest among you will be servant of all. And here's number three, replace hesitancy with intentionality. The, the, the Old Testament wise man said, there'll always be a fear that there's a lion in the street. There'll always be a fear that something bad could happen. But the righteous have to be bold. The righteous have to be willing to take the chance. The righteous has to be willing to say, I'll go where it's scary to go. And that's what we learn from Gehazi. Now, there's, there's two things. I've already talked to you about what to do if you're listening today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Right now, if you haven't already done it, right now, you can pray and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I know that I've sinned. I've broken your law and I've broken your heart. 
but you come to him in mercy. You come to him looking for grace. And he said, whoever comes to me with a sincere heart, he said, I'll never turn them away. You believe that Jesus died a, a, a substitutionary death on the cross, was raised from the dead, and pledge your life to him, and you become a child of God. Now, if you're already a child of God, here's the second thing. Make the decision, make the decision that I'm not only going to go to heaven, and I'm not only going to try to live the way I ought to live, as imperfectly as we all do that. Make the decision that God put me on this earth for a purpose, and whether I'm eight or 80, I'm going to do everything in my power to be what God called me to be. That's a decision that we make. Let me pray with you. Father, in the strong and mighty name of Jesus, we are so grateful that you have given us, yes, it's a destiny, but you have given us an inheritance. You have given us a calling. You not only in your great mercy have saved us, but Lord, you have redeemed us and you've given us purpose. You would say to Judah, the land of Judah, in one of their darkest days, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. And it's not plans to destroy you. It's not plans to wipe you away, but it's plans to give you a hope and a future. Thank you that Jeremiah brought that word to the people of God, and he brings it to us today. Jeremiah would later write, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness, O God. Loved ones, the Lord is for you, and Paul asked this question, since God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. God is for you. Wrap your arms around him and he'll wrap his arms around you. James says, if we'll draw close to him, he promises he'll draw close to us. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Keep watching your email. Keep watching the website. We're going to give you news of reopening just as soon as we can. I love you. And remember, you are loved, you are missed, and you are prayed for. God bless you.